I noticed that as I was sitting, there are five candles of the larger kind. The center one, I think you know, is, is one that, um, it's the pillar of all the larger ones. Um, it actually has an incense plate, and you never see it, but you can smell it. It's an essential oil of frankincense and myrrh and spikenard and hyssop and a variety of other 11 herbs and spices. But I noticed that one of them is missing, and it's funny because I'm the one that set them up there this morning. I'm going, how did I miss that? And it may have not lit. I have no idea. I have no idea. But the reason that I wanted to share that is that, you know, the Lord has uh, declared himself to be the light of the world, and he has given us a light to shine. And I think this is going to be very pertinent because uh, in its absence, I would say to you, are you that light shining? And your presence in here means you're not absence, but you'll see that the link today will be related to administration. Solomon right now, as we're moving in our continuance in First Kings, is a picture of a kingdom that functions very perfectly. He's portraying, and what the scriptures will define for us in the future tense, of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign on the earth with Jesus and his church. We will have responsibilities that have been assigned to us that actually right now are being perfected in us on earth. I don't know what that means for me. I think there's going to be a lot of great teachers in heaven. Uh, I've always thought that perhaps I will be using a blower or sweeper in the streets of Jerusalem because I can do that. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. But um, I wanted to set that as a, as a picture right now because in church there is both inflow and overflow and outflow where it seems like, what do we do with all the people? Well, what do we do with the absence of that one person, that one light that was shining? And so I like the ambiguity, actually, that's there, that there is a place for everyone, but you're not to discount the place that you occupy right now. Some people say, well, who am I? I just sit in a great chair, and I listen, and I attend to the teaching. It's a great place to be. Mary was rewarded verbally by the Lord when her sister was doing much. She was doing the one needful thing, which was sitting at the Lord's feet. He commended her. Never dismiss the importance of being in the place that you're at. But never, ever presume that that's all you get to do. God looks to see the heart. He does indeed inspect the heart and he gives opportunity that we call experiences within the church in which the test is how well do you do with what it is you can do and so these are the things that are important they would be called administrative they would be recognized from this perspective as ministry and we see that going on very often what happens is whom you see up here, you presume is the ministry team. We're only a part of it. Without congregants that are gifted, able to pray, 
and actually reverently deployed to take the word that they've heard and apply it to themselves and take it out there, this really is quite irrelevant. We could project on screen, and we do. In other words, somebody's screen. And that's fine. But what is happening right here is the dynamics of church life. And so as we move back into our First Kings teaching, we're going to take a look at how that is defined. The title for today, for those of you that want to put it in your bulletin, is simply No Sweat, Administration Without Perspiration. First Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, we'll see how far we can go. And with that, there will be some anchor points that I'll bring you to in the scriptures that help kind of lay a foundation. Important. First place I'd like to take you is in Psalm 75. And so hold your place or we get ready to return to it. And Psalm 75 says this to us. You're going to be picking it up in verses 6. Exaltation, and a word for that, contemporarily may be promotion, comes neither from the east, neither from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. And so in this, and it's a very known passage, but it's also a directional passage. How does the Lord work in the opportunities of both promotion, which is highlighted here as exaltation? The better way to look at this is that God is exalted in promotion because it is a yippity-skippity moment for us. But with promotion comes great responsibility. And I've also found that before promotion comes demotion. Have you ever had that happen to you? <laughs> what happened to me now? Why now? Of all things, right now? And part of that is that in the process of greater responsibility comes the necessity of great humility. In other words, it isn't fun. It definitely takes a big hack out of what you felt about yourself or what you perceive others have felt about you. But there's a time in which God makes up that difference very distinctively. Or maybe the better word would be, he distinguishes you among your people. And did you know that each one of you are distinguished among the people right now? Each of you has a, an incredible story, a testimony, admirable in so many ways. Even if perhaps the press hasn't been kind to you, you've been insulted in the media. Whatever facet of communication that can voice negative commentary on your life, the Lord sees it altogether differently. But it's noteworthy to say that in your seeking of God's will, have you first begun by devotionally sitting at his feet in contentment, resignation, 
and with an absolute certainty that it's not all you get to do. I want to take you to another picture right now that is voiced. And it was confirmed today by a brother that just came up, John, sharing with me a devotional that he had during the week. And it plays really an important part in our discussion today. In Titus, New Testament, taking a look at chapter 2 in verse 6, paralleling, I believe, where we will be here and what is also, I think, very clearly defined as administration. Notice what it says. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. That means not cloudy. That means fully engaged with your mind, not disengaged by distractions, elixirs, potions, recreative activities. It does not mean that you cannot have a beautiful and fun relationship with the Lord in what is your daily duties. But we are to take seriously the charge that we have and the message that God has given to us. And it continues on. Notice that it's the young men. You need to be praying for this young generation because they eventually will enter into the maturity of being handed greater responsibilities. I'm an older man now. One time I was a younger man. But I don't have any illusion as to what I'm becoming. I'm becoming one of the older saints. And so I look to, as you ought to, the next generation. Why is the emphasis right now, at least in this passage, on the young men? Because the young men are developing in the Lord in a headship that God has assigned through the scriptures and amplified in what we would call the pattern of a headship, and they're being trained both in governing within the body of Christ and a home that the Lord certainly has great desire that through marriage they enter in and they lead their family and the next generation faithfully. It says in this, regarding these young men, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Those are attributes. Those are distinguishing attributes. And they're important in terms of what God ultimately has purposed for us to become better and better and better at. Hence, Appointments, disappointments, promotion, demotion for the purpose of becoming greater in relying on God with full dependence, not independent. It continues to say that in these things you are to show yourself in this pattern of good works. It also says in sound speech that cannot be condemned that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having 
nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not showing all, uh, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And so this shows us that in who we are, it's compatible with what God has said we are to be. So that's an anchor point. And it's one of the means by which you can say, huh, that's interesting. I seem to be getting a workout in life, worked on by life, and it must be the hand of the potter that is impressing me and forging me and maturing me. So I want to anchor us in that. Returning to 1 Kings, we'll see that this is actually a picture of the kingdom that God is establishing through Solomon, who follows in the lineage of his father, who is loved by God as his father was. But he's allowed to portray primarily what the kingdom of heaven will look like. It will be a prosperous time. It will be a time of great integrity. The king has already observed and dispatched judgment on his father's leftovers. In other words, the previous kingdom had in it warring and factions, sinister people. And so Solomon came in, and as we said in a previous teaching, he dispatched enforced righteousness. He made things right. The Lord will make things right in that time. He is doing that presently, but it will not be perfect at this time. The millennial kingdom will be a perfect place of enforced righteousness and great responsibilities that you and I will be given. But again, I don't know what you're going to be doing. And I don't know what I'm going to be doing. But I know this. I'm learning how to devote myself to the Lord, to sit at his feet. And if that's sufficient in heaven, and I never pick up a guitar again, never sing again, but he says, I love you right at my feet. I'm going to go, I'm good with that. I'm really good with that. And because we agree that whatever God who is good, and he's good all the time, has assigned us to do, well, we know that we're being a blessing, and we know ultimately that God is blessing us. It says in this opening text right now, and we're picking it up in verse or verse 1 of chapter 4, but with just a little bit of a note from the concluding verse of 28. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice, as we said before in the title, no sweat. Administration without perspiration. He's not going to find himself saying, what do I do now? Because it opens and tells us that the people have marveled at wisdom. The wisdom that he's exercising right now was a grant from God, unlike any man had ever been given. One might say flawless in the areas of tending God's people. And that's a pretty awesome thing. Solomon was the one that asked for it. He could have asked for anything but what he asked for. Lord, innumerable people I need 
in my childlike immaturity right now to be given wisdom. And because he asked for that, he got everything thrown in. King Solomon, it says, was king over all Israel. The important part to the first verse is that where division existed under David, where there was warring both within men and externally by men, in other words, enemies of the Lord, and after David considerably, this has been terminated by God. He's given peace to Solomon through essentially the efforts of David. So by the way, much of the peace that we experience and enjoy has been given to you by God through what others have been through, which is the war. That's why very often in culture we celebrate the warrior because without them, without that generation of men and women that have chosen to give their lives up for the safety and the fruitfulness of our liberty, we wouldn't have it because there's an enemy that opposes it. And so in this regard right now, as this begins to tell us how it all started and how it must remain, if it's to be fruitful, it's with the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God comes by one knowing him and continually asking him, Lord, in this I need wisdom. I have some experience, but even with that experience, I'm overwhelmed and how to make it work right now. And there isn't really, in my opinion, something more incredible than by the little experience that I have being anointed with the wisdom that I lack. And God makes me see clearly what I need to do and how to do it. It's pretty amazing. I'm sure you've experienced that. What it moves into right now is identifying what would be in our political day, a cabinetry. And we're not told necessarily how or why they were chosen. We're just informed who they are. We're going to look at some of these things and see if we can have relatability to it. These were his officials, Azariah, verse 2, the son of Zadok, the priest. So we have a PK here, pastor's kid. Uh, my dad isn't a pastor. I disagree with you. If there's a man in a household and he's a father of you, the Lord would say he pastors over you. Well, I haven't heard that from my dad. He's coming along. It's getting better. Give him a shot. If not, then you know what you will become. If there was for him, not that, then what's it going to mean for you when that becomes your responsibility? Pastoring over a home in a relationship. Well, I'm single. Great. The Lord uses single men, single women to have a shepherd's heart. Pastoring really does mean that's the shepherding of the heart. Being able to look after the welfare of somebody in need. Most importantly, their spiritual understanding about God. And so we get those experiences by being in community. It doesn't necessarily mean in community. It means in this community, you get the experience of shepherding. When you go back there and you see the kids, or when you see them come out here, you can be alarmed. But remember, you're a shepherd. You're a shepherd of a soul. 
and it's a young soul, and they don't necessarily know all of the essentials of how to navigate through crowds or not jump over chairs or not to run out into the street. There are many times when me standing by the door, I was able to shepherd little runners, little lammies that were making a break for it. That was a prerogative I had. I took initiative to employ it. We've seen that happen here, where our senses are heightened by that. This man is being credited for being the son of a priest. And if you say, yeah, but that isn't where my dad's ever been, or anybody in my family that I know of, we have a great high priest, the New Testament says. And in fact, that's the picture you need to see. Solomon portrays him to some degree, but in a kingship. The priesthood right now, though, related to the New Testament, is linked specifically to what we are called to be. We're called to be priests. We're called to be prophets. We're called to be a part of an assembly, a family. So even though maybe your dad wasn't in the way that you think it's best defined, the Lord says you have an opportunity of connecting with our great high priest and to learn of him, to know him, and to be transformed by him and empowered by him through the Spirit of God. This was just one. There are many more characters to come. But you need to understand, Zadok here occupied that high priest position. He was a very faithful priest. And you're going to see something interesting come up in just a few verses. It goes on to say that there is Elithoreth and Ahijah, and it says the sons of Shisha, scribes. This is saying that in Solomon, as he had administration assigned, these were the ones that understood the law that was penned. They were both penners, and they were those who had an understanding of what the law of God meant. They were able to come in decisively and correctively and say, huh, this is what it means. That is not what we do. This is what we do, and this is what we must maintain. That was their responsibility. Two of them are assigned right now. It says, then Jehoshaphat, and they call him the son of Ahilud, the recorder. He would be one that you would say is in a secretarial billet, but I like to put it this way too. How are you doing in your recording? Okay, some of you might be songwriters and you are recording. Let's hear it. But what if I said, could you consider yourself a recorder with the journal that you have, the bulletin that you possess? Are you ones that are taking notes in which the Lord, as he speaks through the scriptures, utilizing me in and out of your consciousness or your cognizant thinking, are you recording even the one word that is precise to your need and actually the means by which God is directing you? It's secretarial. I always try to have my pen. Some of you have seen me that even during worship, I'm penning things at times. 
in what I believe either the Lord is refining or a word in worship that I'm hearing, impressions, even to the degree of, huh, how did I miss that candle? Why was it taken? What do I do about that, Lord? And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go over there and get another candle, light it. I thought, no, I'm not. I'm going to leave it absent because I know that it belongs there. But maybe somebody also needs to know you belong here. You're the light. You were missing. You're bright. It's going to shine. It's important. We have people that, as a result of the pandemic, they're missing. They're lights. I know they're out there, but they're not shining in a place also that's very important here. There are reasons for that, and I'm not arguing that at all. I understand the season that we're in. It's a very interesting season that we're in. But what I am saying is that you're here. You are that light. And you are recording right now the things that the Lord is writing on your heart and putting in your mind. It continues on in this list. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army. Why did he possess a position as a general over the army? Mind you, this is the unified army. Because we're going to discover again that both Judah and Israel are no longer divided. They have a one heart that beats for the work that Solomon is doing. David assured that. Solomon's maintaining it. But as we look at this, we can understand that Benaiah was one who, when Solomon took governance, he was the one that was the security officer. He was basically the one that satisfied the adjudication of Solomon. He made a decision that had very often finality in what would have been an individual that had violated God's law, had been for David um, a sinister person. And so that's what he proved himself to be. He never argued the decision of Solomon, as we ought not argue the decisions of God. We are ones who on dispatch, exercise obedience to it. And that's what Benaiah proved himself. He had a hard job, in my opinion. He was basically used to execute judgment, meaning rendering the final blow to the last breath of a violator. That will happen at some point in time. Breath will be given up, and it speaks, obviously, of judgment that does await. The beautiful thing about where we are right now in a time in which we wait for the kingdom age as God is perfecting us as individuals within the kingdom is grace. By grace we have been saved through faith, not a result of works, but it's the gift of God. And so even though I know the candle count, which is six in a crescent with a pan that represents the light under it, the warming of the incense, which are the prayers. The five speaks also as well of the specific number of grace. And so I know that right now this is the age, not because of that, but we know that in doctrine this is a time of grace, but there will be a time of judgment. So we need to take that 
seriously and prayerfully. It continues to move on and it identifies right now that there is, notice this, after the semicolon, Zadok, he's already been mentioned, he's the high priest, and notice this, Abiathar, they're the priests, plurality. Where was the last time you remember Abiathar? Well, if you flip back, if you can, you'll discover it in the 26th verse of chapter 2 of First Kings. And to Abiathar, verse 26, the priest, that's who he was, the king said, go to Anathoth, to your own field, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which was spoken concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So there is something that's generational and there's something that was prophesied but we see Abiathar now paired up with Zadok and it actually is a picture of grace. He had been removed and the reason he had been removed is because he proved traitorous. He moved over to the other side when Solomon was battling with the last brother over the kingdom position that he would be occupying. And so, obviously, Abiathar had a problem with David, moved over to what would be the enemy's side, and therefore he was banished. But one of the things you need to see here is that his banishment was representing, as opposed to the death, the preservation of the priesthood. We see pastors, teachers, if you would, the leadership areas in churches have misses. They have had challenges. But because a man has a challenge, or in this case, disgrace, God's not through with the individual, even though we say, we are. I'm through with him. He's washed up. No place for him. And we need to understand it's an important position of redemption. Galatians tells us that when there are those who do fall, we are to attempt, try, to restore such a one in the spirit of humility or meekness. That's not easy to do, especially perhaps when we're in the know of the facts. But what we do is we bury our dead pretty quickly, or we leave them out in the field. That's becoming a predicament. Zadok seems to have been one that as a priest had the resignation to say, I'll help him back on his feet. In this instance, he's basically one that says, I'll knit him to me, and we'll see about doing it right again. And Solomon seems to have made that assignment. He came from banishment to be next to Zadok. It shows restoration. The millennial kingdom will have great restoration. Failures that all of a sudden become victors, become usable to the Lord and maybe against what you would say was, wow, the Lord can use that guy again? Yep, the Lord can use that guy again, that person again. 
So just something to consider there. A lot of names here. I know that. But notice this. It says, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers. So we have an appointment over the officers, meaning that there are places, and officers would mean those who are, again, assigned to look after either larger or smaller units of people. And this actually is a picture of the church. It may be described in Acts as what were the assignments concerning elders, which we looked at in Titus. That's actually speaking of the young men being raised up to oversee groupings of people, opportunities to teach, and what your disposition and attributes need to reflect. But this particular man, Azariah, he's over officers, so he's in charge. When we have our young ladies teaching and hosting the young high school, junior high girls, when we have our young men set apart, overseeing high school, junior hires, they're officers. They're basically equipping the next generation, teaching them. When Rivs comes out here and he's teaching on Fridays, He's an officer. He's overseeing, both as an elder and one seeing to it that those that are observing are both learning from him how to teach, how to manage. That's an awesome thing. As he continues on, notice this. He's the king's friend. Are you the friend of the king? I like to consider myself a friend of the king. I like to consider the fact that he established that friendship with me by reaching out to me, claiming me. Isn't that a cool thing? That's actually how friendships kind of start. They start by somebody claiming you and desiring the best for you. And there's no one better as a friend than the Lord himself who is king. And I like what that emphasizes right now. The friendship of those in the congregation towards one another is actually very remarkable. What you're willing to do, what you do do to honor the Lord, and that basically serves as a beneficiary to someone akin, somebody a part of the family. It's an awesome thing to see that. I see it all the time. Men who have friendships with God that spill over and I become the beneficiary of it. It's a humbling thing. And they're supercharged for it. They are operating in the spirit. And it's an amazing tribute to God and their relationship with God. When I see men and women do that, I'm going, man, you must have a tight friendship with the Lord to do what it is you're doing. And with such joy and consummate skill a willing heart. In verse 6, Ahishar over the household and Adorim, the son of Abda, over the labor force. There will be work to do in the kingdom age. There's work to do now. Every Sunday when you come in, work has been done that establishes cleanliness in here, sanitizing, we run an ozonator in here. And what we do is we take all of those particular particulate matters, perhaps viruses are floating in the air, and we just zap them with ozone, the O3 molecule. 
we do it just enough to where you're not offended when you come in, but you should smell clean air when you come in. We do it both in this room and that room. And that was provided by one of our brothers. One of our brothers in this room has a machine, and we use it. And he's very gracious to allow us to use it. And we try to figure out how much time it takes to effectively use it. But that's one of the things that the kingdom age will have is holy sanitation. It's going to be a clean place. It will be clean living. You will not catch anything at all. And as this moves on, and the labor force we know is being suggested, are you ready to labor for the Lord out of love? Not out of force. You're a labor force, but you're not forced to labor. Do you know the difference? I've seen people forced to labor. It's not fun to watch them. What's fun is to watch a force that is actually in labor. That means they want to give up for the Lord. They want to do things. They like the opportunities. Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. So what we know is that the tribal units were 12 in number, and what is being called out here is a governorship over them. And their sole responsibility as governors is to make sure that the king has plenty to serve. Who's he serving? Does he have that large of a family? Well, he would have had, if you would have, he would have had state dinners. He would have been both entertaining and obliging those from neighboring communities who at one time were at war, who now pay tribute to him, who desire to understand this remarkable king who has the wisdom of God, who in fact is found faithful in justice. And so this is a picture right now of what happens. There's a delegation right now. Everybody in a workforce and with the responsibility of making provision. It's one of the things actually that the church does that's a picture of that. When we tithe and we give our offerings, we're basically setting before God's people and as a part of God's plan, a table that is set. The provisions that make this work are directly linked to tithes and offerings. In governing the body, at the same time granting liberty to the body, it's the way that people are fed. What? The Word of God. Well, we're going to see exactly what was on his table. But when we take communion, the elements represented by the unleavened bread and the juice, the Lord would say, that is a buffet. That's got everything that you need. But because you take it seriously, revere me in it with thanksgiving, I'm going to show you what the other stuff is that you get to enjoy. The banqueting that's available to you. It's actually preparatory to what we know is called the wedding feast of the Lamb. When the Lord takes the church out of this world, when there's a judgment that will come down on the world, there is a buffet that will be happening in heaven for seven years. You're not going to have to worry about what's going on here. It won't be your concern. You will be completely enjoying fellowship with the saints at the Lord's Supper 
and it will be fabulous. As this continues with these governors being named, and I'm not going to go through all of them right now. You just need to know that of them, they're being assigned right now to make provision once a month for the king's table, that the king's people can be fed. And it's a pretty awesome testimony, again, of assigning this, but also the faithfulness of these governors and making sure that that happens. Oops, it was my time. Really? This was my week? This was my month? I didn't know that. <laughs> I can see that. I remember as a teacher, very often, it was the librarian that would be knocking on my door. Hey, Rich. Yeah? Bertina, what's up? Your class is due in the library right now. They're supposed to be in my class now. Oh, I forgot. And so I would then, in a panic, stop whatever it was I doing to usher them into Bertina's library. I wasn't a great governor in making that kind of thing happen. I've learned, though, that God is governing the people in the church with precision. That's the cool thing, is I've actually learned how to step back and marvel and how God is communicating his will to people, and they are on dispatch, and they were doing things both in time, and it's amazing what they accomplish in a short time. But all of these people right now have been named. It's a serious responsibility, governorship. They're handling it quite well. It goes on to say at the close of this, and this is where I want to come into in verse 20, Judah, it says, and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, and it says, eating and drinking and rejoicing. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what the scriptures declare. His tribe was a special people. They were the ones that persisted in saying that Solomon is where he is at because of who we are. When they became arguments as to why are they the ones in charge of the procession of the king? And it's because they know their place historically. But the idea here in this particular verse is that they were innumerable like the sand. And notice as a result of who they are, because Jesus would come from this lineage, eating and drinking and rejoicing. This isn't gluttony and drunkenness. This is actually celebratory. The kingdom age will have great celebration in it. It will not be a boring time in what we're doing and where we're at. Again, being at one time in Israel, I don't fully get the picture of how it's going to work. I just know that God is going to make it work beautifully. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms, and it says from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the borders of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And our life in the kingdom age, that thousand-year period will just be the beginning of eternity that's established I don't know what it's like to live a thousand years, obviously. You don't either. But it won't be boring. 
and it leads ultimately to the eternal. Rivers has been teaching on these things to the expectant church. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal. It goes into telling us actually what was being served. That's about 55, 35, 55 pounds of whatever it is they're serving. So when you see a core, it's based on a measurement of weight, but it has kind of a spectrum anywhere from 35 to 55 pounds, maybe a little bit higher. Grains differing from the meats. 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastors and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. And this ought to be turning your stomachs right now, saying, man, I can't wait till he shuts up so I can get my lunch. He had dominion over all the region of this side of the river from Tipshah even to Gaza, namely over to all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. This was guaranteed to Solomon, all his life, peace prevailed. The millennial kingdom will have peace. There will be no disturbance, no uprising, no differences of opinion. It will all be rooted in honoring the Lord. People are striving for peace, but they get none because they haven't come to terms with the Prince of Peace. And even those of us who have come to terms with the Prince of Peace, the Lord tells us in discipline, possess your peace by keeping your soul. Hold your mouth. My grandmother would say, hold your peace. We're into the time now in the culture where you got a peace on you, meaning something to fire, something to take care of business with. But the Lord said this peace is going to be a part of not only who you are now being perfected, but also what I will ensure happens. It's a picture of that. All sides all around him. By the way, the topography or the geography mentioned here is actually describing the promised land in its entirety of what Abraham was given all the way up to the borders actually encroaching into Egypt, Iran, all the way to the Mediterranean, all the way down to the tip of Africa. It was a part of the plan of God to give all of Israel all the land. And he was the possessor of it, greater than David. Judah and Israel, they dwelt safely in each man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. And so I'm going to give you a closing footnote there for you to look, which is a prophetic voicing. Micah chapter 4, verse 4. And the word there for you, so I'm going to see if I'm able to locate this very quickly, is simply... That this represents, Mike is your root, that in this kingdom, every man's going to have his heart's desire, his fill, like a 4-4, a vine. It's a beautiful prophecy because it speaks of the assurance that perhaps what you feel you lack now, God makes up later. Every man, you'll have your property, you'll have your fruit trees, you'll have everything that a heart would desire here, but it will be perfectly given to you then. 
in every way that's meaningful to you now, it'll be more meaningful to you then. It's the prophecy rooted right now in what this kingdom age represents in Solomon's rule and reigning. Move down with me, if you could, to verse 29. This is an important closure here. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashores. He had a heart that touched God. Started out that way. It'll change. Not the Lord. But I wonder if maybe we need to be asking, as we look at this, to have a largeness of heart. A continuance of wisdom that's given to us and a largeness of heart that happens in what manner? The Lord answering us. When we find ourselves critically and divisively looking at others and the way things are going for us, our hearts get small and they get hard. But when we live truly seeing the bounty of the Lord, the provision of grace, his mercy to each one of us personally, this is what seems to happen, both with wisdom, great understanding, and the largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. We would call that in today's vernacular, got a big heart. A big heart for God translates to a larger heart for the people that God loves and cares about. This all concludes to Mark Solomon and obviously his attributes and wisdom, how it plays out and the things ultimately that he is able to demonstrate to people. It says that the men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And people will come from all over the world in the millennial kingdom to participate in sitting and marveling at the Lord. 